Welcome to another Ideas for India conversation. I am Lakshmi Ayer. I am an Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Notre Dame in the US. And our guest for this conversation is going to be Vishnu Priya Gupta. Vishnu is a Professor of Economics at the University of Warwick in the UK. And her work has been very influential in shaping views on India's economic development in the historical perspective. So today's topic is going to focus on the role of history in shaping development, particularly India's economic path. And so we're going to talk to Vishnu about some of her work on things like the great divergence on what India's economic path has been, what have been the historical circumstances or institutions that have shaped the development trajectory of India and other interesting topics. So thank you for being with us, Vishnu. I also want to say Vishnu is the research director of CAGE uh, at the University of Warwick. CAGE is the Center for Competitive Advantage in the Global Economy. It's an ESRC-funded research center. Uh, and even more exciting, Vishnu is going to be the editor of the Journal of Economic History starting in, in July of this year. So welcome to the Ideas for India conversation, Vishnu. Thank you, Lakshmi. It's a great pleasure to be here and thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so let's uh, jump into some of the things I wanted to pick your brains about. One is, of course, this is a particularly appropriate moment for having this conversation on history, because India is now completing 75 years as an independent country. And so I want to examine two big questions in the conversation. How successful has India's economy been before colonial rule, during colonial rule, after colonial rule? And secondly, what is the role of history, broadly speaking, historical events or actors or institutions in shaping India's development trajectory? So let's get your thoughts on how well has India's development path gone? So I'm going to take you back several hundred years and to the time of Akbar, because Steve Broadbury, uh, Johan Kastodis and I estimated the GDP per capita for India going back to 1600. And I'm going to share a little graph with you so that I can talk you through what our data shows on this particular indicator of economic development. So here is a graph which shows the Indian GDP per capita in 1990 GK dollars. And you can see the decline beginning right after 1600 and continuing until the 19th century when you see it stabilizing and then growing a little bit and then kind of staying stagnant. Now, if I show you the relative decline with respect to British GDP per capita, you can see that decline is much sharper. And that's because Indian GDP started declining quite early on. At the same time, British GDP per capita was growing. So the difference between the living standards of the two countries diverged quite dramatically. And that's what is known as the Great Divergence. So I'm going to stop sharing here and then move on to some of the questions that you've raised. The idea that colonization is what led to the decline in Indian GDP per capita is not something we find in the data. We find that this started a long time before that. It did not do very much better under the colonial rule. But once India integrated into the British Empire from 1858 and into the system of trade, there was some increase in agricultural production. There was introduction of new crops, and that did have some impact on increasing GDP 
per capita a little bit. Although this was not sustained, so almost the whole of the first half of the 20th century, there was total stagnation in the colonial economy. So in that sense, it's totally legitimate to say that, you know, the British did nothing for Indian economic growth, if you look at the historical data. But at the same time, your data is showing something very interesting, that the common view is that India was the great glory in the British crown, India was a super rich country, uh, and the British coveted all these riches of India, and then they impoverished India through their policies. And your data from the early period is kind of going against both of these ideas. First, India's economy is already in decline at the time the British empire was being set up in India. And it was exactly at the time, as you say, made even worse by the fact that Britain was undergoing the industrial revolution and they were growing very fast. And secondly, it's not that, as you say, you can say, blame the British for not stopping the decline. In fact, your graph shows that it flattens out a little bit after the integration of the British empire. So that was actually quite surprising to me. I had a little bit of a follow-up question. What kind of records do you use to construct these uh, amazing series all the way back? That's a lot of work, I'm sure, finding the resources to create these estimates, but that's created such new knowledge for us. So the method that was used for the British context initially, now the British data is much richer, was to look at what the population estimates are and then to think of what would be needed if everybody consume a certain minimum agricultural output and a certain minimum industrial output and so on. And then we have data on real wages to build in some elasticity. And then we can see if income wages were falling, what would happen to that consumption? What would happen if wages were rising? So we get a trend. Our data is actually quite different from Madison's data, which just assumes that everybody was at subsistence. Hmm. And so, so this is kind of estimates from the demand side. But we need cross-checks that these are accurate. So we collected supply-side estimates based on revenue, you know, government spending, actual agricultural production at three different points in time, and cross-checked that our demand-side estimates actually fit in with the supply-side estimate, so that these are actually reliable estimates. And we do have that robustness check. And so the methodology is very simple, but it relies very much on these cross-checks, which are based on supply side estimates. In a sense, from a basic econ 101, it's one is like the expenditure estimate of GDP, the other is the income. Based exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. And you did both, and they, the, both of them show the same trends, that exactly economic decline starts after 1600 and continues throughout with some variation in the speed of decline, perhaps, and maybe a little bit less of a decline after the British established their empire. That's correct. And so I think the main critique I would make of British rule is that they had much more tools in their hands in terms of economic policy to make the economy grow. So, for example, investment in agriculture to build lots of irrigation. Uh And they did build some irrigation, but this was pretty limited. And therefore, you don't see a big impact on agricultural output. In fact, you see a lot of stagnation. And that accounts for the overall stagnation in the economy, because what the literature for a long time has emphasized is the deindustrialization in the 19th century, the decline of the Textiles. handicrafts uh, and the textile industry. And that is true. And it actually made a lot of people unemployed and moved them back to agriculture. But this was a very small part of the economy. So its overall effect wasn't that big. And the pictures we have from 
for example, work of Chris Bailey, which is of very vibrant market towns and so on, very urban based. And therefore, it's like comparing you go to a shopping mall in Delhi and you think this is a very prosperous society. But then you go to a village in India and the picture is very different. So to look for the average, I think it's important to see the data. And then that's what we try to do. Yeah. So the other thing I actually wanted to say is that there is also this perception that the British didn't allow Indian industries to develop. And that I don't think is true because Indian industrial output at the time of independence was very similar to the industrial output in Korea, for example. So the industries which grew very rapidly in this period were the modern cotton textile industry, the tea industry, the other industries, and a lot of Indian entrepreneurs were involved in it. So it is not a story of the British actually preventing Indian industrialization. There was a lot of industrial growth at this time. But what are the constraints on Indian industries at that time? Sarim, I know you've been doing some research on what prompted the growth of Indian industry during the colonial period and what specific constraints Indian entrepreneurs faced and how much of that is related to the nature of colonial rule versus other factors. So that's a really interesting question. If you look at the export industries such as jute and tea, these were dominated by British entrepreneurs and there was a lot of state support from the colonial government for these industries. When you come to cotton textiles, it was the Indian entrepreneurs who invested in this industry. And my work with Dilip Mukherjee, Kaivan Munshi and uh, Mario Saclemente, we find that despite the fact that there was no state support and Lancashire tried to block any kind of tariffs on imports into India, the Indian entrepreneurs still managed to set up a lot of textile firms. And they did it by using their community connections and the wealth they had accumulated in trade to move into industry. So it is a story of success, actually, the development of an industry which was being built directly in opposition to Lancashire. However, after the First World War, British attitude towards Indian industry changed quite a lot. And partly it was because of the war effort, but partly also the support Congress had from the industrial groups in India. So the British then tried to change their policies quite a bit. Right. Right. And so in one sense, how would you characterize the progress of India after the colonial period? So your graph kind of ended in the middle of the colonial period. And you already said that it was interesting that the colonial period looks a little bit better than the pre-colonial period. But what about the post-colonial period? What are your thoughts on progress? So here I have taken a long view and I'm not the only one to do it. If you start looking at GDP per capita from 1950, then the period 1950 to 1980, particularly the Nehruvian period, looks really bad compared to East Asia. We have had this conversation on in low growth in India for a very long period of time. But if you look at the colonial period and the change, then it's a structural break in 1952. And we have that from the work of Neeraj Hatekar, who looked at trends in GDP per capita and several sectors. And GDP break comes in 52 because growth rate went from 0% to 2%. And that's kind of a, a big change. So looking at the whole of the 20th century actually gives us a very different perspective on the Nehruvian period compared to if you start in 1950. Correct. So slow growth compared to fast growth looks bad, but compared to the absolute stagnation of yes. the late colonial period. So the only good thing, as you said, which can be said about the late colonial period, at least was not outright decline. It was only stagnation. Yes. 
not a great thing to report. Not a great thing to say. You're saying even the Nehruvian years looked much better. And then, of course, uh, in the 1990s and 2000s, we've had a growth uh, acceleration yes. after the mid-1980s. So that, that part looks much better. <laughs> Yes, and I also think that, you know, the policies of the Nehruvian period are not seen in the context of the colonial rule. If you look at the discussion that happened during the colonial period amongst members of the Congress, the industrialists, it was all about British policy and being integrated into the international economy, which had done India so much harm. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the change in policy was pretty dramatic to move away from that international connection. But there is a context. It's not that it was just pulled out of thin air. And I'm much more sympathetic to the Nehruvian policies as a result of taking this historical view. Especially when you look at the economic outcomes, at least when you see how stagnant the economy was, there definitely must have been pressure for change from citizens, especially in a newly democratized country. There would have been a lot of that something has to change. But thank you, Bishnu. That was actually very interesting to see how using the historical lens changes our conclusions uh, about India's progress and uh, an evaluation of how well things have gone, gone or not gone, as the case may be. So let's uh, talk a little bit more in detail uh, about history. So in the last two decades, I would say there's been an explosion of research on economic history and the role of history in determining long-run development outcomes. In particular, there have been very influential papers like the paper of Asamoglu, Johnson and Robinson, who look at cross-country data and they reach the conclusion that places where colonial rulers put in place extractive institutions were very disadvantaged and they uh, had much worse development outcomes than places where colonial rulers put in place what they call inclusive institutions. So do you agree with this view? And does India match their conclusions, the nature of colonial rule in India? So I agree with the view that extractive institutions led to bad outcomes for the society as a whole. And I totally understand the data they have put forward and the conclusions they've arrived at. Where I don't disagree, but I think the qualification I would seek is that when you look at places where there are good institutions, and these are examples like North America, Australia, New Zealand, you know, the economic outcomes are good. But if you look at the indigenous populations, they are not part of this good outcome. So there are these groups of people who've been outside the system of inclusive institutions. And I think there is less of a discussion in the literature on that. I mean, it's starting a little bit in economic history circles, but I think not much is said about the marginalization of communities who stay outside these institutions. Right. So you're seeing, in a sense, the successful colonies were successful for the colonizers and the ones who set Exactly. Exactly. People who were there originally are kind of almost not even represented in the historical discussion. In this, exactly. I think your second question was Indian context. So I think the first institution that the British brought in were the land tenure systems, which you and Abhijit worked on, and you know more better than me the evidence is very strong that this has had a long-term impact on different economic outcomes. And therefore, the construction of a land tenure system has very long-run effect on any economy because it's very difficult to change it. Once you have this in place, you have interest groups who are associated with this. And then it becomes very, very difficult 
to move away from the land ownership patterns to something different. Correct. And what we found in our work was that these long-run effects of these land tenure systems lasted even beyond the existence of those systems, as you said, because they morph and, and take different forms. So for instance, the places which used to be under the Zamindari system, they were actually more productive and with higher agricultural yields in the colonial period. But when you come to the modern period, particularly after the Green Revolution, those are the areas which fail to take up this new technology. They have are much slower in taking up green revolution yes. and having high yielding varieties. And so we see this reversal. Places which were originally less productive ended up doing better if they had a more equal distribution of land in the historical period, which is under the Rayatwari system, essentially. So it, as you say, even though we don't officially have zamindars anymore, the system gets perpetuated in other ways. For instance, some of the things we speculated about was there's a lot more class conflict. Uh, in those areas mm -hmm. because of these different interest groups having been created and solidified over so many years. Exactly. And then we also see it in many other contexts. Like, so you look at the Mita in Peru with Melissa Dell's work, or you look at Ingham and Sokolov's early work. Once the land ownership system is in place, that has very long-term implications in many different contexts. Correct. Correct. And I think one of the interesting things about Ingham and Sokolov's work was they said the richest American colony in the 1600s were Cuba and Barbados. They were the rich sugar colonies, but they had set up these highly extractive systems of slavery, mm -hmm. of forced labor, of very unequal ownership of land. And in the modern period, these are not counted among the very rich countries anymore. So again, they document this huge reversal about places originally considered unproductive, not worth investing in but in the long run being much more economically successful. Mm -hmm. I mean, which brings me to my related question about the role of labor market institutions. So we talked about land and the, the other big factor of production, which is labor. Part of this is the evidence from the Americas that places which had plantation agriculture, forced labor, slavery, those were originally put into place because they were very profitable at that time. And now those areas are not as well off as before. And Nathan Nunn's work using African data has shown the same thing, that places in Africa where a larger number of slaves were taken and exported to the Americas uh, experience huge declines in, in per capita GDP. In fact, they are much worse off even today. And obviously, we do not have slavery anymore. Slavery ended more than almost 200 years ago. But the lingering effects are still there. And part of it is the institutions and the culture that was built as a result of the slave trade, in particular, pervasive mistrust between individuals and uh, between groups of individuals and pervasive mistrust of their own governments, because clearly history showed that they could not trust their governments to keep them safe. And he feels that that's one of the reasons slavery has this long run effect. So in India can be identified questions of labor market institutions. India never had much slavery of the kind that was practiced mm -hmm. in the American colonies. Um, so what kind of labor market institutions, especially historical ones, have long-run effects? We know from uh, Nathan Nunn's work and also other work on serfdom that these have very long-term effects. But institutions such as slavery and serfdom have always emerged in the context where there is a labor shortage. And India has never been in that situation. So the labor market institutions in India have been very different. We see 
uh, uh, prevalence of bonded labor in the context of interlinked factor markets, but it's not anything of the scale that we see in the context of slavery of serfdom in Europe or uh, the Russian Empire. But what was quite specific to the British Empire was that once the slave trade ended, these places of labor shortage were looking elsewhere to get labor. Mm-hmm. And the colonies were used to supply indentured labor. And these are contracts where, you know, people were given a passage to come to the places of production and then stay for a fixed number of years until they repaid that debt. And then they had the option to go back. So the sugar plantations in the Caribbean, which we have been talking about before this, relied largely on the indentured labor from India. And these are thousands of miles away, right? So so workers from many different parts of India went to these plantations. So the British Empire did use some kind of coercive labor system to keep its wheels in motion of producing sugar and then selling it in the British market to the British consumers. So there is a part of the labor market in India which did participate in the empire project. Right, right. And which empire specifically shaped for... Exactly, absolutely. uh, And do we know something about the effects of such indentured labor? So we know that Definitely some people who went as indentured labor did settle uh, in those places. But do we have ideas of how many settled, how many came back? Did their return help their places of origin in India? So there's also a debate nowadays in the modern world about the effects of migration, Mm -hmm. uh, especially seasonal migration, temporary migration. How much does it help? And I'm wondering whether there has been this analysis of these historical patterns of not seasonal, but somewhat temporary. It's only for a few years that you go and be an indentured labor. And then when you come back, does it uh, have long run effect? Do we know? So, this is an open area for research. Yeah, it is actually. You know, this the individual level new data and some district level new data is being analyzed now. Mm. So that in the last 10 years, we know much more about indentured labor from the work of Alex Persaud and one of our PhD students, Ashish Agarwal. So Ashish's work is interesting because it ties in with your work that in years of a bad harvest, places which were in the non-landlord system were more likely to see migration in, under indentured contracts. Mm. Because I suppose people owned land when they were facing a harvest failure, they would sell the land and then they would move uh, to work in some other place. Uh, And that that work is uh, actually really quite interesting. And it could be because that workers in the landlord tenure areas, maybe they were already on a bonded labor contract with the landlord. Exactly. A new uh, contract somewhere else. Absolutely. So there is some kind of coercion to remain in the landlord areas as opposed to non-landlord areas. In terms of return, there is again some very new work coming through. There's work by Uma Kambhampati and Neha Hui, which looks at the caste composition and the gender composition of migrants who came back. So mm. people who went on indentured contracts but returned. So uh, did they tended... women go on these contracts? Or... So families went and single women went. And you see women were less likely to come back. Uh, lower caste uh, uh, indentured workers were less likely to come back. People who came back were more from the upper castes. And that seems to fit in with this whole thing that once you escape the caste system, you probably wanted to live in more equal conditions. Yeah. Well, that's very interesting. These are things we didn't know, as you said, before uh, these new data sources have been available. 
So I think it's a, a fuller picture of the effects of such migration. We probably still need that fuller picture. Yes, to- and you know, only a little bit of the data has now been analyzed. There's so much out there. Like every right. country which had indentured workers have these records at the port of arrival, almost similar to the US. And you have to go and dig up this data, go to Natal or Fiji or some of the Caribbean islands have data as well. So it's a lot of work to be done in the future, next 10 years, I guess. Right, right. No, that's actually quite exciting. Partly, I think, relates to modern debates. So there is a lot of internal migration in India right now. And because it's free movement of persons, we don't have good records of how many people are migrating from one state to another, from one district to another. We have only the census, which I think every 10 years asks, if you were not born in this place, then where were you born? So we have some estimates, but those would capture only somewhat permanent migrants mm-hmm. and not this kind of I went to this city, so the usual story of a Bihari laborer going to Gujarat, working for five years and then coming back and what effects that has. I think that's a big open question in today's India. Absolutely. And And again, I don't know of good work documenting how much that matters. So this is an advantage of the British legacy because we have this incredible data. So at the port where they boarded the ship to go, there are records of how many people were going from which district. We can actually see the district level migration from the port of embarkation. And then at the port of disembarkation, we see the individual level data of who's getting off, what's their name, where they're from, where they're going. So there's a lot of interesting work to be done in this field. Right. So I think you're showing us many big open areas of research in economic history. We think that the past is over, we know everything, and it turns out there is a lot, lot left to learn from there, right? And in a few minutes we have left, I would also like to ask you a little bit about the effects of gender uh, and women on the economy. So a puzzle in modern India is that women's labor force participation is pretty low. It's about, I believe, 20 to 25%. And what has been striking in a number of papers have documented this, that despite almost three decades of pretty fast growth and uh, a lot of structural transformation of the Indian economy. So we are no longer a farming heavy economy. A lot of people still work in farming, but lots of new opportunities have come up, particularly in the services sector, where you might think women have better opportunities than say in farm labor. And still women's labor force participation has not increased for three decades. If anything, it has trended a little bit down. I wanted to ask you two things. One is what has been the role of women in the economy in the historical perspective? And does that historical perspective give us some new insights into the modern role of women? So in colonial India, women's labor force participation was something like 30%, which is not low by the standards of an agricultural economy. And it's understandable because in an agricultural economy, a, a lot of women work. Most women worked in agriculture, but quite a lot worked in certain industries. So for example, biddy making is an activity which women did or basket weaving and things like that. James Finske's song, Yuan and I did some work recently looking at the effect of the influenza in 1918 to see whether it had any impact on women's labor force participation. And we find that in 1921, 
the districts which had a high mortality, there was also an increase in women's labor force participation, but only in the service sector. And we tried to disentangle, you know, understand where this is coming from. And one suggestive evidence is that districts where there were more widows, there was this increase, which suggests that if you are destitute, then you have to enter the labor market. Necessity, yes. But we also found that the effects are quite different. There are heterogeneous effects of the pre-existing share of women's participation. So if, if it was below the median, then in those districts, we don't see much of an effect. Whereas if it was above the median, it was higher in those districts. So we concluded saying that, you know, there are some social norms that women should work and they should not work. And that determines whether they participate in the labor market or not. So, so even though there's a shock to labor demand because of the influenza epidemic, the women's labor supply is able to respond to that demand only in certain places. That's correct. Yeah. Right, Only in places where the norms were already conducive to their participation. So that brings to a very interesting question. Are those same norms in play today? Is that why we don't see big increases in women's labor force participation? In fact, it's for the last 30 years. Are there instances of those norms changing? What's your view from history about these things? So there are two things. One is that in as societies industrialize, you see women participating less. This is the U-shaped curve, right? But in the historical context, even in, in Europe and North America, the industrial workers always wanted a family wage. And the move towards a male breadwinner family is very much associated with early industrialization. And part of the reason they didn't want their spouses to be in the labor market, it, it signaled that you're well off. So there is a certain economic prestige associated with your spouse not being in the labor market. And I suppose uh, some of that is we see in India today, that if you are better off, you don't want your spouses to work. But the other thing which strikes me about India is that, you know, there is a big increase in service sector growth. But in the service sector, some of the jobs which are in the West, for example, done by women are not done, done by women in India, for example, in the hospitality industry. You don't see many women working or in clerical jobs. So I think there is a social conservatism which impedes women moving to the sectors where they might have a natural advantage. And it's only for very high skilled women or highly educated women that these barriers become less important. These two things you mentioned, the social image and the bias against women's work, could be self-reinforcing in a growing economy, paradoxically, right? So as an economy becomes richer, and as, say, the male wage becomes higher, then this status argument kicks in even more. And so even if the other norm gets a little bit relaxed, that people become more okay with women working, this social image thing would counterbalance that. So maybe it's a combination of these two factors that are uh, driving the low participation. I don't work with contemporary data, but from what I've read in the literature, that's the conclusion I would draw. Having said that, suppose you increase college education. I think college-educated women are less likely to be bound by social norms. And then you might see a bigger increase in women's labor force participation. And India, I don't think is there yet, but maybe that's the way forward. So, you know, India has been In terms of educational gender gaps, there has been a lot of catch-up. In terms of primary school enrollment, it's uh, equal across uh, genders. I think there is still a little bit of gap in secondary school completion. 
But those gaps are being narrowed. So that is some potential for change in the future. And it might be something to watch out for. And finally, I just wanted to ask you, well, now that India has completed 75 years as an independent country, how much can we still blame history? Or let's put it the other way. Have we overcome our history or does it still continue to constrain us in some ways? So I think some of the historical legacies, you know, still remain. And I want to pick on education because I think the British policy towards education was very different from what the Japanese did in East Asia. So the British prioritized secondary education and tertiary education at the cost of primary education. So even when in Britain, you know, universal primary education was being rolled out, it never got any voice in, in India. And that had implications because we now have an economy where there's a lot of skills and all these skills are concentrated in the service sector, which was historically also the case. So, you know, occupations like trade and other service sector occupation needed high levels of literacy in the colonial time. And that's also the case today. So in that sense, the education policy didn't change very much right after independence. There's still the secondary and tertiary sector education bias that's part of the policy. And so that legacy has continued. And I think it still has impact because right. we see that in the service sector growth, whereas, you know, industry has never been a leading sector in India. Despite many campaigns Absolutely. in India, national manufacturing mission, you can name all kinds of policies. But services are now more than 50% of India's GDP. And, and most trying- of the human capital is in services, whereas you see industrial workers, you know, with primary education, or maybe there are also a significant number of workers without any education. Mm-hmm. So I think that has a implications for productivity in the industrial sector. And I think it's very different from what happened in East Asia. And maybe that may explain the difference between East Asian development pattern and Indian uh, development pattern. So that's at least one pernicious long-run effect of historical policies. I will wind up now. Thank you so much, Vishnu, for highlighting how studying history can change our view of modern uh, Indian development and modern Indian trajectories as well, how sometimes uh, history's pernicious effects somehow continue. And I think you've highlighted also areas of open research where there's still much to be learned, both from history and from the modern context. Uh, So thank you for sharing your work with us and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Lakshmi. It's been great talking to you about Indian economic history and thank you again.